everyone. Today we are continuing with sermon number two in our new sermon series we're calling Then, Now, Next. So we're looking at the church, then, the church, now, and next. To ask these few questions. What is the church? What does the Bible say about it? Why does it matter? Why is the church important to walking with Jesus in the world today? And how do I fit into that? And of course, God has a very unique, special place for you to fit into what it is that he's doing in the world. The church is really his plan A, and he really does have no plan B. So last week we talked about being the people of faith. And today we're going to take a look at church and using the metaphor of a local. We are the locals of the kingdom. Now, Many of us live here in San Diego. I know we got people watching from all over the country and even some cases around the world, but we live in, we'd like to think, and we're right, we live in America's finest city, also known as San Diego. I'm talking about the land of Maverick and Goose, the land of Ron Burgundy, the land that gave you the two greatest Tonys that have ever lived, Gwen and Hawk. We live in a very special place, a place where the weather is virtually flawless almost the entire year around. And we are a proud city. We're proud of being America's finest city. Now, if you are a local in San Diego, there are certain things that you know that other people don't know if they're not from here. I married a woman from Oklahoma, and it's taken her 12 years of living here to pick up on some of this stuff because a local will be able to tell you hey, this is how we do things here. It's not, you're not gonna find it in a Chamber of Commerce brochure. You're not gonna find it in any of those kind of places. It's stuff that just the locals know. So for instance, uh, not only did San Diego give you the great gifts of WD-40, the great gifts of Taylor guitars, but we also, we also invented the California burrito. Now, some cities have things like championships in sports. We, we don't have that. Uh, but we do have the California burrito. And we have other little local traditions, like for instance, we know for a fact that there is no like one best Mexican restaurant. If you really wanna know where you find the best Mexican food, you ask for that specific little dish. Where has the best tacos? Where has the best burritos? Where has the best rolled tacos? And if you're sitting there going, rolled tacos, what are those? Those are what the non-locals refer to as taquitos. So rolled tacos are what we call them here in San Diego. We also know for a fact that if you're bringing up Mexican food, you never, ever, 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 ever bring up Taco Bell or Chipotle. Am I right? That's absolutely true. See? Undisputable. So then, after you get past that, you know that stuff about beach fire pits. Right? If you're going to get one on the weekend, you don't just get up and go get a beach fire pit on the weekend. Somebody's going to probably have to stay the night. We know that Mission Beach is generally for the tourists. We know uh, that uh, if, you, if you're going to ask us what our favorite brand of footwear is, we're more likely to say something like Rainbow or Reef than we are Nike or Adidas. We've got our things. We've got our traditions. We know uh, that, that SDCCU Stadium will never be SDCCU Stadium. It's the Murph. It's Jack Murphy, right? The, the Safari Park, as it's known now, and it says on the sign, is really not that at all. It's the wild animal park, okay? The real ones know. So that's what it means to be a local. You know stuff that you don't see in the brochures. You don't see it on the signs. It's those little things, those little traditions, those little ways of life, right, that, that certain towns have. And so uh, I want us to take a look at what that means for the church. Because when you're a local inside the church, I want you to think of yourself as the church being this little place 
but where the locals exist in terms of the kingdom of God. So it's not a, a concrete American city like, say, San Diego or something like that. It's a city of God. And we're the locals. We're the people who kind of know how to do things the way that Jesus asked us to do them and called us to do them and stuff. And we have our little local bases of knowledge. And so one of the things that we can do is help people who are newer to the faith to be able to understand what it means how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. So I want to begin in a strange place, perhaps from a biblical standpoint. And it may seem at first like these two don't have a lot to do with each other, but bear with me. I think you'll see that they do. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which says this. And this is a great one to commit to memory, by the way, if you're into memorizing scriptures, which will change your life, by the way. He says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because everything flows from it. So what goes on in here? So what goes on in here? Not just what goes on here or, or what we do, um, but the heart drives all of it. What we say, the things we do, all of that comes from what goes on in here. What we love is going to rule our life, right? What we love is naturally going to ru- uh, rule our life. So what we strive for, what we long for, what we crave, what we wake up in the morning thinking about, what occupies our, our mental real estate at night, those things that drive us, those loves, if you will, are what cause us to do the things that we do. We do those things because we love certain things or we're aspiring to certain things. So let me begin by asking you, okay, what's yours? What is it that you're really after? Is it a uh, a beautiful little home for your family with a white picket fence, a yellow house, whatever it is? Uh, is it to be wealthy? Is it to have your kids grow up and be successful and well-adjusted, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, is it some sense of fame for yourself, notoriety? Is it to feel the approval of people? That there are things deep inside of us that drive us, that make us want to do this and that and put our life on a certain path. We call those loves, if you will. Theologian James Smith put it this way. He said, we are what we love because we live toward what we want. He then uses this illustration of a beach ball. So a beach ball, it wants to float on the surface. So if you take that beach ball that you see there and you put it on top of the water, it's just going to float around, right? But let's say that a surfer or somebody or a kid playing in the surf grabs that beach ball and they push it underneath the water. If they were to let it go, it's going to float up in a particular direction, right? It'll go up this way, it'll go that way, it'll go that way, or whatever, right? And and what what that beach ball does is in which way it floats and when and how fast is all a symptom of a bunch of different factors. What's in the water, how full of air the the, uh, uh, beach ball is, how... Uh, which direction you held it down in and all of these different things. But there's a reflex in that ball to float to the surface at a particular speed and in a particular direction. And so he uses that image to describe our impulses or our reflexes in our everyday lives. And that the beach ball is essentially what we love and that when you push it under the water or whatever and let it go, what we love determines how fast it goes and where it goes. It's a metaphor for the reflexes we've got in terms of how we live our lives and how uh, directly we, we, we pursue certain things, how quickly and how, with what intentionality we do those things. See, in the same way, your life and mine, they're going to drift toward what it is that we want, what we really want. Not what we say we want, but what we actually want. So if our loves are oriented toward material things, for instance, they're going to, the beach ball will float that way. 
And almost everything we do is going to start being guided. The reflex is going to be toward doing whatever it takes to make more money and hang on to it at all costs. If it's directed toward the Holy Spirit, though, then our loves will lead us that way. And you'll see the fruit of the Spirit being born in our lives. But our ultimate loves, those loves, those things that drive us, are things that the Scriptures will suggest to us are learned. That those are things that can actually be changed. They're not things that are just given to us like some sort of genetic thing and uh, we're pre-programmed that way and we can't change. We learn to love not by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form habits of how we should love. So I want to take a look at Philippians chapter 1 here for just a second read this to you. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Philippi. He says this. Now read this really carefully. He says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, at first glance, it could seem like Paul's praying that the Philippian Christians would deepen their knowledge so that they might love each other more. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying the opposite. He prays that their love may abound more and more because in some sense, love is the condition for knowledge. Okay? Love is a condition for knowledge. It's not that I know in order to love, but rather I love in order to know. So Jesus exposes our true loves and helps reorder them for us. So one of the things that Jesus does when we're following him and we begin to follow him, our loves begin to be exposed. So so the scriptures, for instance, as I'm reading them, as I'm digesting them, as I'm letting them shine light and truth into my life, they show me what I actually love. They tell me what is actually important to me, not, not what I wish was or what I say is important to me, but what actually is. It's, James will use the metaphor of a mirror. It's like looking directly into a mirror, which the mirror don't lie, you know. They say the camera adds 10 pounds, the mirror may add 15 or 20, you know, we'll see. So you get this, this, this picture of the Bible or Jesus himself or the Holy Spirit showing us, illuminating, uh, lightening, you know, bringing the light up in the corners of our hearts to show what we actually really love and, and what we pursue. And Jesus exposes those. And then if they need reordering, it's him that helps us reorder those. And we change those through imitation and practice. Imitation and practice. So it's the imitation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the following, doing what he says and what he does. And frankly, sometimes his followers as well. That somebody, Paul would say in the New Testament, follow me as I follow the Lord, follow Christ. That sometimes it's watching the locals and how they act and how they interact that helps train us in the way of Jesus Christ. So it's imitation, and then we do it over and over and over again. It's through practice that we learn to do these things. And so what you need to do if you're trying to take this whole Jesus thing very seriously is thinking about paying attention, not just to what you do in your everyday life, but once you can discern what it is you're actually doing, we need to pay attention to what what we do does to us. So the things that you're doing in your life right now, everything from uh, every habit you have, your sleep habits, your eating habits, but more importantly, your spiritual habits. Praying, not praying. When do you pray? Why do you pray? How do you pray? How about uh, something as simple as uh, reading scripture? Do I do that? Do I not do that? 
How about worship? Uh, is it something I pay attention to? Is it something I do? Why do I do it? How often do I do it? Those kinds of things, right? What, what we do, okay? What does what I do do to me? That is a super important question if you're looking to be shaped spiritually. Imitation and practice means that I'm going to build a life that habitually puts me in relationship to people that are, that are worthy of imitation and practice things that reinforce the right loves in my life so that the beach ball floats in the right direction when I, I let it go. So to just simply learn is not really what it's about. Paul says, no, you grow in love and in unity toward one another so that then you can discern properly and, and, and walk the right way, walk the right walk in your life with Jesus. See, learning is really only a piece of what will change you. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Edwin Friedman, and he wrote an amazing book called A Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. And one of the things he points out is what he calls the fallacy of data, the idea that if we just learn enough, if we have enough information, if we have enough data, then we will be able to solve all the great and weighty problems of life. But he will go on and talk about, for instance, when you're talking about building healthy families, and he was a therapist, among other things, but how just getting more information doesn't really help you a lot. So for instance, if in fact data really solved the problems, then you would think the people who knew the most would, would have the best outcomes. So for instance, therapists should have the most put together families out of everybody because they know, uh, you know how, to, how to do that stuff, right? I mean, so the, the divorce rate should be lower, uh, kids should turn out more well-adjusted, but that in fact is not the case. And the reason is, because information doesn't necessarily mean transformation. It doesn't mean that you can take data and just knowing it in and of itself helps do anything. And this is kind of Paul's point. He says, I want you to learn to love. And that loving one another, that community that you have, then leads to knowing, which then leads to acting. So that's the order he kind of gives it in. Now, Jesus didn't say when he comes to earth, for instance, hey, you know, read this book, listen to this podcast. He didn't say that. He said, follow me. Imitation and practice. Imitation and practice. Imitation and practice. It takes knowledge to love, but transformational knowledge, you know, learning what it means, what the local traditions are, what Jesus wants you to do on a day in and out basis, day in and day out basis, that takes love as well. Love is shaped through imitation and habits. What people sometimes say is the inability of Christianity to be relevant to them is usually, I would even say, the result of misguided loves leading to a lack of habits that help people love Christ more deeply. So for instance, what ends up happening is, follow me here, uh, somebody doesn't put themselves in proximity to the people of God or to Jesus himself on any kind of regular basis. They're irregular in in their worship and their um, and maybe going to their growth groups or whatever it is that goes on. And so they're irregular at doing that. Therefore, no change takes place because they're not practicing habits that allow that transformation to take place. So they don't do it and then blame the church for not being relevant. It's, it's like me blaming my gym for the current state of the union physically. Uh, that's not the problem. The problem is that I don't go to the gym or I don't eat the way that I should. Those are the reasons why. And it's not too different in the spiritual realm. That if we want to be more like Jesus, that begins by putting ourselves on a course to be more like Jesus. And that means 
getting familiar with what the locals do, so to speak, that in the kingdom of God there are people who have been walking with Jesus a long time that can help us learn how to do that. If you, if you want to be skinnier, you do what the skinny people do. Uh, if you want to be more wealthy, uh, you don't go to the guy who's on the street and, and homeless. You want to find that person who has practiced and knows how to cultivate that habit and that result that you're looking for. And if the result that we're looking for is Christ-likeness, which is really the command of Scripture, to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, love our neighbors as ourselves, then what we want to do is, is go find those people that are committed to doing that and put ourselves around them all the time. And we practice that stuff together, like being in a gym with workout buddies. You're there, you're all lifting, you're all working out together, and you're all on the same path to the same goal. It highly, highly helps. It helps immensely. Because if we don't, then we're going to miss, miss imitation and we're going to miss habits. I want to introduce you then to somebody from church history. We're not going to go back that far. We're going to go back to 1918. And I want to introduce you to my good friend, Francis Grimke. Francis Grimke, he was born in the American South in 1850 as a slave. And he was emancipated at the age of 15 at the end of the Civil War. He made his way north, he studied in Pennsylvania, then eventually went to New Jersey and became a student at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he spent most of his ministry at 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and he died in 1937. But one of the reasons that I like to learn from him is because he was a pastor through the Spanish flu epidemic that went on back during uh, his time in ministry. And so for those of us who are wondering, how do I be a Christian in an era where there's a pandemic going on, Francis Grimke has some great words of wisdom for us. He lived through that Spanish flu of 1918 and he preached and then published a sermon that he called Some Reflections Growing Out of the Recent Epidemic of Influenza That Afflicted Our City. It was preached on November, 4, uh, November 3rd, rather, 1918. It's full of all sorts of insight on how Christians can respond to a plague, but I'm gonna focus on two particular excerpts from that sermon. So let me read this to you. Another thing that has impressed me during this pandemic, Grimke writes, he goes, it has brought out in a way that is very gratifying the high estimation in which the Christian church is held in the community, the large place which it rarely, uh, really occupies in the thought of the people. The fact that for several weeks we have been shut out from the privileges of the sanctuary has brought home to us as never before what the church has really meant to us. We hadn't thought perhaps very much of the privilege while it lasted, but the moment it was taken away, we saw at once how much it meant to us. One of the gratifying things to me during this scourge has been the sincere regrets I've heard expressed from all over the city by numbers of people at the closing of the churches. The theater goers, of course, have regretted the closing of the theaters. I do not know, this is funny, he goes, I do not know whether the children or the teachers have regretted the closing of the schools or not. Now, of course, this is long before the days of education by Zoom, uh, so that meant everybody was just closed. And then he continues, listen to this, but I do know that large numbers of people have regretted the closing of the churches, and I hope that now that they are opened again, that we will all show our appreciation of their value by attending regularly upon their services. It would be a great calamity to any community to be without the public ministrations of the sanctuary. So he's saying too, that the church is the place where we learn to imitate Jesus and to create those habits that make us more like him. 
So in our era, with the closing of the churches, would it be too much to say that once they reopen, that it would be a great tragedy to have gone through everything that we've just gone through? And then once everything's back open, to go ahead and allow our spiritual lives to stall out, which they don't have to be doing at this moment. But the church, it's essentially like the gym reopening from a spiritual standpoint. To withdraw from the church is to withdraw from the community that helps you form habits that make you more like Jesus. Now, COVID has done us a favor in some ways. It has really disrupted our routines. And it's tossed them all up in the air, which is very anxiety producing because we all have our routines. But what you'll notice about your routines is that usually what is routine for you, those are actually the most important things in your life. Okay, brushing your teeth. You do that, hopefully, on a semi-regular basis. And you do that because it's important to do. You eat maybe three times a day. Some people eat seven, eight times a day. But it's important if you don't do it, if you drink water. You do things that are important to you on a regular basis. Your, your routines, while not always providing the most excitement in your life, actually stabilize it. They, give it uh, they, they make it solid. They make it something you can build on. And when those routines go away, we really do notice, don't we? Boy, I want to just go find my old routines and give them a big old hug and welcome them back whenever I get the chance. That's kind of one of the things that we need to pay attention to when we're looking at our spiritual development, when we're looking at our, our discipline, when we're looking at where we want our lives to actually go. So when Paul talks to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter one, and he prays for them, that, that prayer that they will grow in love so that they can discern and discern so they can grow, that is the prayer that carries forward to this day. Following Jesus means loving God with everything and others as ourselves, and that can become second nature to us. That can be something that's developed if we're not there now, that that's something that over the course of lifetime through imitation and practice, that those loves can be transformed so that the beach ball floats in the right direction. It can become second nature. So for instance, at this moment in time, you're not choosing to breathe. You're not sitting there consciously going, okay, okay, wait, 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 breathe. Uh, you're not choosing to blink. You're just doing it. It's second nature to you, right? There's a difference between a new driver. I've got now two teenage daughters who are terrorizing the streets of our town behind the wheel of a car. And there's an enormous difference between an experienced driver and a new driver, but it's not that the one knows the law and the other one doesn't know the law. It's not that one knows where the gas pedal is and the other one doesn't know where the gas pedal is. It's that one is driven so much that they are aware of all of the different things that can happen. And they're used to driving so much that so much of it is second nature. You may have even noticed this. Uh, watch the next time you commute how easy it is for you to get from your office to the house. And even if you go through 20 minutes, 30 minutes of traffic, you may go through that drive and not even remember exactly how you got there. You just start and next thing you know, you're in your driveway. It's second nature to you. Okay, That habit, that, that second nature, just like breathing, like blinking, like like driving familiar routes on the street, like knowing how to hit that your car when I push the brake this hard, it stops at this rate. Those little things that you don't have to concentrate on. That there is a world out there in which we can learn to follow Jesus in that way to where righteousness and, and peace and the fruit of the Spirit are being born in our lives as a second nature because the Holy Spirit 
has been cultivated in our lives through imitation and practice. Better life begins by loving Jesus better. I want to introduce you to a young man that created a very interesting little device. This is Declan Sandlin, and he invented this little contraption. It's called the backward bike. So it's just as it sounds. It's a bicycle where everything on that bicycle works the opposite of the way you do it. So if you grab the handlebars and you turn it to the right, the bike actually goes left. If you pedal backwards, it's actually like pedaling forwards. This bike is so insanely weird to our devices that Declan himself, once he invented it, could not ride the bike. He couldn't do it because, as you know, it's just like riding a bike. That phrase is used because once we train our devices and our habits in a certain way, once you learn how to ride a bike, you really don't forget how to ride a bike. And that was kind of the problem. So he creates this device only to find out that he really can't ride that bike, that your, your devices, your brain, your, your senses, your nervous system, all of those neuropathways are so well trained that if I turn right, that bike's supposed to go right. If I turn left, that bike's supposed to go left. And if you reverse those, it makes the bike actually rather unrideable. So it took him strict training. It took him eight months to be able to ride a single block on his own device because that's how well ingrained his devices were. That's how well and uh, he had learned to quote unquote, ride a bike, right? He, so his son though, who was much younger, had actually, he learned to ride the backwards bike in two weeks because his habits weren't as well ingrained. So I wanna, again, families and churches, we need to make sure that we are committed to developing those habits and helping life change in the next generation. Because there in that next generation, it's a lot easier sometimes to, to teach a young dog new tricks than it is to teach the old dogs new tricks. Now, both can happen. And with life change, Jesus has transformed every, I mean, all sorts of lives, all sorts of ages, all sorts of times, places, everything. But boy, especially in the young, we have this great opportunity to help in the community of faith, help them learn how the locals do things, how, we, how you learn how to read your Bible, how you learn how to pray, how you learn to live righteously in the kingdom of God. So... We are those locals in the kingdom. This is the street I grew up on. It's called Avelis Street. Now, if you'd walked up to my house and seen myself, uh, I was throwing a tennis ball against my parents' gate when I was a, a young kid, or see me uh, kind of jumping over the big gaps on the, on the sidewalk in that neighborhood. It's a very simple little block. And you could come up and you could say, hey, Tim, you know, try to describe Avelis Street to me, right? And I could try to describe it, and, but I knew everything about that street. I knew, and I still do. I, when I go back there, everybody's still living there in the same spot that I left them. You go back to Avelis Street, everything's pretty much still the same, you know? Uh, you might be able to go, hey, you know, um, where is this street or that street? And I might be able to tell you, and I might not. But if you ask me local stuff, right? Um, Hey, uh, we're super convenience. I can't find it on a map. That's because it's not called that anymore. It just says convenience store. It used to be called super convenience. I know the name of the two twin brothers. They're Libyans. They're from Libya. And they still work there. And they still call it super convenience, even though the sign on the outside doesn't say the same thing. I could tell you that if you wanted the best dinner, 
you go to Tony's house where Big Sal is making Italian food. And I could tell you that Scotty lived over on Shipway. And I could tell you that Ben, who likes to fish, lives on Lees. And I could tell you that that crack in the sidewalk is the best one to jump your skateboard off of. And I could tell you where to ride your bike. The best route to school was actually through the neighborhood and under the freeway overpass, not out on the main streets there, because out on the main streets, there were a lot of cars and it was, it was busy there. And I could tell you whose parents were having trouble. I could tell you all of this stuff, right? I could tell you, you know, right? That map knowledge kind of looks at the town from 10,000 feet in the air, but that's the knowledge of a spectator, not an inhabitant. A local lives there. Uh, they live right on the ground, not at 10,000 feet. They live on the ground. And Jesus, I would suggest to you, uses the church as a way of helping train people for life in the kingdom of God. We are an outpost of the kingdom of God and a very, very important one. And that's one of the reasons why the church matters as much as it does. Spiritual formation is not about taking us out of the world. It's about us learning to live as locals in the kingdom of God here on earth until Jesus takes us into another place that will be locals, and that's heaven. But habits aren't just the result of what we love. They shape what we love. And so it's this mixture of setting, this is what I want to love, exposing what we love, this is what I'd like to love, and then putting a plan in, in place to help us develop the habits and the way of heart and life that leads us to love the right things. So let me give you maybe two questions to ask yourself, and I'll do it by showing you this strange little contraption of slides. This is a photo exhibit that was done by a man named Eric Pickersgill, and it was called Removed, and it's a series of photos where people have had their cell phones removed from the picture. And it does look kind of creepy and kind of strange and a whole bunch of other things, but it's also maybe a little bit sad. They're ignoring all these beautiful surroundings around them. They're ignoring the other people around them as they kind of sit there on their phone. So just take a look for a second as we're going through these. And just as a reminder, perhaps, that there's something where you might want to put your phone away. So ask yourself, what if it were removed would change your life for the better? And then you might want to ask, what if it was added as a habit would change my life for the better? What needs to go away? And what habit might, want to, might I want to add that would help me learn to love and to live the way that Jesus would want me to? And then here's a little homework for you. Look honestly at your life and ask, what kind of person does my life shape? I mean, sit down, look at everything. Look at, look at your day planner, look at your checkbook. Look at what you're doing with your time. Look at the relationships you have. Okay, if I were to just, if it wasn't me and somebody else I knew was living this life, what kind of person would they become over time? Now, that's a little bit of a deep exercise, but man, is it important to take the time to step back and go, okay, look at the way my life is organized and set up. What kind of person would that person become? If it wasn't me, and somebody else, some imaginary person, or that guy over there, or, or some person that I don't even know, if they were to do things that I'm doing, if they were to live with the priorities that I have in my life, what kind of person would they become? And be brutally honest with yourself and ask God through prayer, God, show me, light it up, expose it, so that I can see your truth in my life. Okay, so take a look at today and tomorrow and ask what the things that you're doing are doing to you. Second, as Grimke makes his way to the end of his sermon, and I want to go back as we begin to gather around the Lord's table, I want to show you this quote from him. This is 
This is his advice to us. He says, if faith is to help us, if it is to put its great strong arms under us, if we are to feel its sustaining power under such distressing circumstances, it must be a real living faith in God. It is a good time for those of us who are Christians to examine ourselves, to see exactly how it is with us, whether the foundation upon which we are building is a rock foundation, whether our faith is really resting upon Christ, the solid rock, or not. Why, yes, it is, Francis. Yes, it is. At this time, we're going to gather around the Lord's table with that in mind, and we're going to do that examination. We're going to gather around the table of the Lord, and we're going to take the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and the cup, which represents His blood, and we're going to ask those questions of ourselves. <laughs> he says, it is a good time for those of us who are Christians to examine ourselves, to see exactly how it is with us, whether the foundation upon which we are building is a rock foundation, whether our faith is really resting upon Christ the solid rock or not. Let's ask that now as we pray. Heavenly Father, right now, we gather as your people and we say we want to live as locals in the kingdom. And Father, we want to live like Jesus. We want to, to think the way he does. We want to act the way he does. We want our words to sound like his. We want his values to be the, our values. And so, Father, now we who are locals in the kingdom, we ask that you restore our lives, put them on a path of righteousness. And Father, for those who are new to the faith or checking out the faith or, or curious about the faith, Father, may we as locals in the kingdom, Father, live in such a way that by following us, they could follow Christ. And so, Father, now for the gift of the church, for the gift of being able to gather together and to train together and, and get our loves in line together, we give you thanks, and we thank you for the one who makes it all possible, our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.